Amen. For those of you that know me, you know I'm a little bit of an excitable person. I, uh, I love uh, Jesus very much, and that uh, causes me to uh, participate in the Romans 12 passage that says, never be lacking in zeal. But that a passion and zeal and excitement tonight is a little bit on overdrive. I love the passage that we get to teach tonight. I think it's extremely pertinent for our particular situation And uh, so I want to welcome you into this and remind you a little bit of what we're doing because maybe what we're doing here is a little bit uh, different than what you're used to, okay? You can take a couple different approaches with God's Word. Uh, Many of you in your own personal study, you read it and then you instantly are just trying uh, trying to match it up with your life, trying to see what the Word says and how it instantly applies to you. That's not our approach here. Our approach here isn't to teach God's word in the hopes of with some creative words and self-help philosophy to give you some ideas and things that can help make your life better. That's not what we're trying to do here. We want to teach God's word so that you understand the context, that you understand the audience of who these writers are writing to and the historical evidence that's happening in all of the inworkings. Mostly we want to understand what each passage is teaching us about the character of God what these verses say about God's awesome character. And then last, yes, now what does this mean for us? How does this scripture apply to us? And so if you're just joining us, that's what we're going to be doing. And tonight, in one of by far the most intriguing, interesting stories in the entire Old Testament. So you guys have your Bibles. Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, once you guys get their uh, page number in our pew Bibles, what's the page number? 629. Now, what's the, uh, what's the biggest party you've ever been to? The amount of people. Just throw out a, throw out a number. Biggest party. Two? That's, in, that's incredibly lame. Like, I don't, is that you and your mom or what, bro? What's going on, right? Anyway, like the biggest party. What? Anyone? 300? Okay, 100. That's pretty, right? What else? Anybody? Cindy, what are you saying? You, are, are you like a wedding? What's the biggest wedding you've been to? Biggest wedding you've been to? 300, all right. So all of these parties, like if you just get the amount of people at these parties, well, a couple weeks ago, what we found out is there's a massive party happening. Belshazzar has taken over as the king of Babylon. Now this happens through a string of events. I want to show you what's happened. I'll put up the kings here of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has been our main character. He was the original king of Babylon that we met long ago. He dies. Amel Marduk, his son, takes over for the very longevity, uh, the the long term of two years. His his brother-in-law then kills him off. Then his son kills him off. And then finally we get to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, like I told you last time, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a, he's an interesting character and doesn't desire to to rule in Babylon. In fact, he's so freaked out that he wants to leave Babylon. So he heads 50 miles to the southwest, and he appoints a man named Belshazzar in his stead. And Belshazzar rules in Babylon, the greatest city in the entire known world. Now, what we left off last week is Belshazzar throws a gigantic party for a thousand lords. I explained to you this room was incredibly long and Belshazzar was seated up at the head of the table. This was a drunken, and there's no better way to say it than orgy. 
There's all kinds of perversion happening here. Everybody's getting sloshed. This is a party for in Babylon, the ages. The problem is, what Belshazzar knows but isn't, but isn't fearful of is that the Medo-Persian army is outside of the walls of Babylon. And they're getting ready to take over the entire city. But Belshazzar feels incredibly safe, and, and, and rightfully so. The Euphrates River runs right up the middle of Babylon, and on every side of Babylon is literally an 85-foot wide wall. So they were extremely protected, not just by the river, but by the wall. And so, Belshazzar sits in his comfort, everyone's drinking, people are having sex, and then he looks over and he sees a human hand without any limbs beginning to write on the plaster of the wall. Picture yourself right there. Like I said last time, some would say, well, this is just a drunken stupor. No, no, no. He's fully aware. And it's not just Belshazzar that sees this hand without the limbs writing. It's everyone in the room. And so picture yourself, Belshazzar, he turns to his left and he sees this hand beginning to etch these words. And it, it, it scares him. It frightens him. He gets overwhelmed. And so first what he does is he calls in all the wise men. He's like, hey, can someone please interpret this for me? And he's trying to do this with you know, only half capacitated. And this whole room is just crazy. But, but they can't. They can't interpret it just like all throughout of the book of Daniel. And so then you remember in verse 10 of last week, who does Belshazzar call? Anyone? Or actually, who comes in the room? Anyone? The queen, right? His mom comes in. And this is kind of an embarrassing moment for a king a little bit, right? His mom comes in, and, and she's like, hey, uh, Belshazzar, how you doing? I'm your mom. Good to see you, right? Get this, Belshazzar. There is this man named Daniel who the spirit of the gods is in. Call him in, and I bet he can interpret what's on the wall. And so where we left off last week is the queen and Belshazzar call Daniel in, this massive, a thousand-person party. People are drunk, lots of nakedness. This is a crazy, crazy scene. And this story, like a modern-day soap opera times a hundred, gets even crazier. Are you ready, my friends? Are you ready? You ready to do this? Here we go. Verse 13, then, of Daniel chapter 5. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. This, to me, is overwhelming. You have a man that all throughout his life has been living faithfully for God. And he comes into this room. Do you understand what's happening in this room? Daniel, this man of God, enters into complete chaos, right? I mean, this is, this is a party, this is the party to the hill. You know what I'm saying? Jersey Shore, like they don't even compare to this kind of party, right? Snoop, Snoopy, what's her name? Snooky, right? Like she can't even, she doesn't even hold a, a match to this kind of party. He walks in, this man of God, to this kind of situation. And look what happens. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, interesting what he says here, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, and again, like I told you last time, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his father, but in ancient times when there was a kingship order, often they would call the grandfather uh, the father, and that's probably what Nebuchadnezzar is here to Belshazzar, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah, verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. Now, uh, Daniel is... 80 years old. 
He has been in captivity, listen, for 66 or 67 years from where we met him. We met him as a young 14 to 17-year-old boy, and now he's 80. So Daniel, the 80-year-old, walks into this party, and Belshazzar, in his half-drunken state, says, I've heard of you. But remember, Daniel was made and given a power, a power position in Babylon. So apparently, him and Belshazzar haven't had a lot of contacts. Maybe Daniel has distanced himself. But either way, look at what he says. That the Spirit of God is in you and so interesting. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Uh, the Aramaic word here is naheru. Everyone say that with me. Naheru, right? You just learned Aramaic, right? Brilliant. You can go home and tell your parents, hey, mom, I learned Aramaic tonight at church. It's, it's, it's amazing, right? This beautiful language. And it literally means this. It means illumination. Belshazzar looks at Daniel and says, it's as if you're illuminated. It's as if there's so much light coming from you, so much illumination, that you just, you give off this gleam. There's illumination and wisdom. Verse 15. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter, verse 16. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, look what he says here. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He offers him the world. What he doesn't know is Nebuchadnezzar has already been captured by the Medes and the Persians. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is just hours from his death. But he offers him power and wealth. And the thing that's overwhelming to me trying to understand this scene is for Daniel in this moment, do you get how accessible sin is? He walks in and instantly the sin of lust is all around him. And instantly, the sin of pride could be welling up in him as he's given the opportunity to have power and wealth. And the fact that he's even been called into this room could raise his pride, right? Envy is, is, is in him as he looks out and sees some people who could be having fun that he could be having. Sin to Daniel is so accessible it's as if it almost could trap him in, close him in at every turn in this room. Easy to touch, easy to see, easy to hear. Have you ever felt like that before? That sin was like literally trapping you in, enslaving you because it was so accessible. Could we just agree? Sin is incredibly accessible in our culture. It is bombarding. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn is an opportunity to lust, have envy, develop pride. All of these things are so accessible. It's at our fingertips, literally. It's at our touch, literally, all day long, every day. Have you, have you had that sense of feeling trapped ever, friends? Where you just, you just don't know where to go. The amazing thing about this 80-year-old man is that from the time when he was 14, listen, to the time now when he's 80, he has never been trapped by the enslavement of sin that has caused him that we can see to compromise. 
he's never been bombarded to the point, though sin was always accessible, he's never been bombarded to the point where finally he just said, I'll just give in. Like, this is too hard. I'll just give in to what's easy. Never. Listen, it's as if he understands this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I have to read this for you. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13, says this, No temptation, listen to this, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Do you get this, church? There is an escape, he says. Look, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. If you do not know Jesus here, you don't believe, don't have faith, you've been distanced from Christ, there is no escape from sin outside of Christ. You will forever feel trapped, bombarded, weighed down, burdened. But with Christ... The opportunity to never be burdened beyond the point of compromise. To never be weighed down or trapped, though sin is so accessible. Do you get that picture? We live as Christians in a culture where sin is so acceptable, but the promise of the gospel is that there's always a way out. There is an escape through Christ. And no matter how trapped you feel or how bombarded or how developed by culture you feel gripped, Through the gospel, there's freedom and hope and light. And for those of you in here that confess Christ and yet you find yourself feeling trapped, you find yourself feeling burdened, don't lessen the power of the gospel. Christ has freed us, made a way out, and given us an opportunity to be enslaved to sin no longer. Amen? And that's our great promise here that Daniel somehow understands. So the 80-year-old dude, probable gray hair, right? I mean, they didn't have gray coloring for, what's the gray coloring thing for old guys now? What's that called? Just for men, right? They, they didn't have just for men back then, right? So he comes in, he may even have a little limp to his walk, whatever. And he's still saying, I will not be moved. I will not compromise. Though sin is so accessible, I will not give in. And then he drops the hammer. Look at this. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. We saw this when he was 15, 16, 17. This look the king in the face and look up to the king and give hard truth. But now can you picture this? He's got some OMP now, some old man power. Right? He's got some OMP. He's 80 years old. And now he looks at the king and he says, get the picture, thousand people. Let your gifts be for yourself. Do you understand what he's saying? I cannot be bought. I can't be bought. You've offered me the world. You've literally offered me number three in command of the greatest empire in the world for three more hours, right? You've offered me the world. But leave your gifts I can't be bought. And most importantly, what he's saying is, my God does not have a price. My God can't be bought. I can't be bought. You can offer me whatever you want. But I won't give in. Do you have a price? Is there a price on your integrity where things get a little dicey? 
where what you were able to not compromise in when things were low and not of much value, as that value rises both monetarily and otherwise, would you say you have a price? Would you say there could be a temptation that would almost be undeniable for you? Cheat on your taxes a little bit and it will give you just a couple more, literally thousand in the account and you smudge a little bit. Back when I was working at Pondegrosa Steakhouse, right, there was always this temptation to when you typed in your tips to type in a little bit less so they didn't tax you as much. And there we're, t- we're just talking about literally like 75 cents sometimes. Tempted by that. All right, I know I made 75, but I'm just going to type in 30, right, so I can save myself a buck 50. Do you have a price? What we see in Daniel, no price. He can't be bought. He can't be offered enough money to compromise. Here, have all the power in the world. Uh, leave your gifts for yourself. I don't want anything to do with them. I will stand here as an 80-year-old man and not compromise. That, my friends, is OMP, right? Then Daniel answered, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation, right? Leave your gifts, but you know what? This is going to be kind of fun. I'll go ahead and interpret that, right? And and I just want to give you a little bit of a preview before we get there. What everyone's looking at is still a hand on the wall writing this. Put up those four words. This hand is writing those four words on the plaster wall. And it's still happening as he's talking, right? So imagine this scene. This is a crazy, crazy biblical scene, verse 18. And he goes after Belshazzar here. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. I love Daniel's understanding of God's sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar gained nothing for himself. Though Nebuchadnezzar sat on the throne of the world empire, it was only given to him by God. The the king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he killed, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. This is interesting coming from Daniel, because you remember that that Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem where Daniel was from and killed men, women, and children. That some of Daniel's uh, friends that have been deported, historians tell us that those folks were killed as well. So when he says that God allowed all of that, what he's saying is, is that God allowed you, Nebuchadnezzar, to even kill some of my very friends. Understand that picture of sovereignty. Whom he killed, he, he allowed. Whom he would, he raised up. And look at, what, look at what he says here at the end of verse 19. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was filled up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken up from him. You remember what Nebuchadnezzar said, his very last words that are recorded here at the end of verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar said, whatever uh, rises up in pride, God has the ability to humble So he goes on, verse 21. So because of his pride, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. For for those of you that that are just joining us, God literally took Nebuchadnezzar, gave him long hair like a werewolf, fingernails, and made him literally... Like a, a dog in the, in the wilderness, living like that for seven years. All because of his pride. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew, until he knew, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And look at this. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you what? Though you what? Though you knew all of this. Now, historically, we learn that, uh, that this guy, Belshazzar, was probably in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And if he was in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, he would have had access to all of this kind of information, all of the wrestlings of Nebuchadnezzar. What Daniel says, you knew Nebuchadnezzar. You saw what happened. And yet you sit here, and in this party, you had the audacity. Do you remember what the problem is? He brings in the vessels from God's temple, Belshazzar does. And he pours wine in these vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And he pours wine, and as they're all drinking these, the scripture says they're praising the God of gold, silver, bronze. As they're drinking from the vessels that came He's putting himself up against God. You didn't learn. And I want to put it this way too, and it's going to set up something we're going to talk about later. Belshazzar was a horrible steward of the truth. He was a bad steward of the truth. He knew the truth. He didn't steward it well. He didn't learn from it. He knew it, but it didn't cause any transformation in him. He was a bad steward of the truth. Verse 23. But... You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've gone toe-to-toe with God, all right? How many of you guys uh, remember Mike Tyson's punch-out back in the day? Old-school old Nintendo, some of you guys. Uh, how many of you guys ever got to Mike Tyson, the, the last, okay, three of you? Um, with, and those three were with the cheat code, you know what I'm saying? Whenever you got to Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson's punch-out, I mean, it was like, it was more than David and Goliath. Because you're like little Joe. This little guy who on the screen is like this. And Mike Tyson comes out, and his mouth is like one big bicep. I mean, he's just huge, you know? Just this big old guy, completely unattainable. And when you felt like you were going toe-to-toe with Mike Tyson, minus a cheat code, like there was no possible way. This, even escalated, is exactly what Belshazzar has done. He's put himself toe-to-toe with God. Hey, bring in God's vessels. Pour them with wine. And now in this drunken orgy, we're going to drink from these vessels. He's essentially said, all right, God, what you got for me? What are you going to do? I want to bring it now to our situation a little bit. Every time we have the potential to disobey, isn't that what we're doing? Aren't we looking in the face of a holy, righteous, good God and saying, I can go my own way. I know what your way says, but my way's better. I know that your words hold weight, but in this moment, I think I understand more. Aren't we essentially saying, what do you got, God? Seriously, I can be God. I mean, I could probably run this show better than you could. I know we would never communicate that because we would believe that was blasphemy. But don't you in your heart sometimes, based on your decisions, feel that way? God, I know, you're, I know I'm feeling prodded to head this direction, but no, no, this time it's my way or the highway, God. I, I want to pro- propose to you that we're not that different from Belshazzar. He goes toe-to-toe with God 
and I believe we've done the same. And Daniel is calling him out all the while. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, in the middle of verse 23, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. You praise these worthless gods that have no feeling, that don't talk to you, that have no communication or connection. Look at this. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Now, 80-year-old man, 1,000 people, hand still writing those words, and this man looks Belshazzar in the face and says, you knew the truth, and yet you have not honored God. That is confidence in his God. That is the opportunity that he has, not just to not compromise, but to be a proclaimer of the truth. Friends, you with me? It's one thing to walk in that room and not lust, and not have pride, and not have envy, and it's a whole nother thing. Not just to not interpret those things, but to look in the face of the king and say, you have not honored God. You haven't followed him. You didn't learn from your past. And so I guess now I'm going to have to interpret these words. And this is not going to go well for you. Verse 24. Then, then from his presence the hand was sent. Okay. We have hand writing. Now the hand's gone. All of a sudden right before their eyes. Right. The hand of God is writing on the plaster. And then as he's done talking the hand disappears. I mean. I know it's hard to not picture this like some cartoon, but try to picture it in reality, right? A crazy, crazy scene. His hand was sent, and, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. This is the interpretation of the, manner, of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Okay? I'm uh, not Captain Obvious here. Uh, but there's one word that's uh, repeated. Right? Savvy? And that word that's repeated is what? It's mene. Now, any time in our, our rhetoric that we repeat something, we bring what to it? We bring emphasis. Here's what, uh, here's what the hand wrote. Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. Right? It's like, just in case you didn't understand that your days are numbered, literally, your days are numbered. And what we'll find here at the end is his days were really numbered. Mene, mene, your days are numbered and your kingdom is going to be brought to an end. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Uh, I need some kind of object. Can I borrow your, uh, your woman satchel there? Thank you. Okay. Uh, now this is uh, a female uh, thing here. Uh, what do they call this? A wallet, okay. We're going with satchel. This is a female uh, purse here thing, okay? Now, in ancient, and this is going to help us. In ancient times, the way they would weigh something, all right, much less sophisticated than our digital scales, all right? They would put something on one side of the scale. So let's say this weighs, this is pretty hefty, what do you got in here? A couple hundred dollar bills, y'all? A little green, all right? So let's say this weighs like 20 pounds, okay, because all the green that's in here, right? They would put something on the other side of the scale, and based upon where the other side met, it would tell us, all right, well, this weighs 19 pounds or this weighs 5 pounds. We together? Actually, it'd be the other way, 19, 5, 19. You understand. We're all confused now. A scale, right? <laughs> now, now, here's the amazing thing. What the interpretation of tekel is, is you've, you've come up short. 
your weight is less. Look at this. You've been weighed in, in the balances and found wanting. We put you on the scale and you didn't meet up to the standard. That's what he's saying. Finally, he says this. And, and Peres or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. How about that? All right? Your days are numbered. You don't match up. And your kingdom is going to be completely divided. Now, what he doesn't understand is as this is being interpreted, listen to this brilliant strategy. Babylon was considered unimpenetrable, right? Because the Euphrates ran right through the middle of the city and this huge wall, and there was no way to break through. But the Medes and the Persians were somewhat savvy. As this is going on, they're damming up the Euphrates River so that the water would, would recede underneath the wall. Brilliant strategy. What happened is the army went under, killed the guards, and then opened up the gates, and the Medes and the Persians flood in. All of this is happening literally as this is being interpreted. The water is going down, the army is going under, and this whole great city of Babylon, which has been the world empire for nearly 100 years, is about ready to go down. Now, a long time ago, these words were written. How many of you guys have ever heard the handwritings on the wall, right? That's a classic. It's, both my parents here are, are here tonight. I love them. I'm sure they've said that to me at some point, right? Mark the, hand, the, the writings on the wall, right? Have you ever heard that? I believe it now more than ever. What's different about that situation than now? Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. Our life is but a mist, Scripture says. I don't know when it's going to come to an end. I have no understanding of when God will take me from this earth. Your days are numbered. Your days are umbered. Tekel, you don't match up to the standard. The standard is God. You don't meet it. And so because of that, you're divided. You're divided, separated from God. The exact same words that Belshazzar saw on the writing of the wall are the same words for the entire mankind minus Jesus. You're divided from God. Your days are numbered. All of this is coming to an end. The blessing for you and I is the power of the cross, that same power of Jesus that allows us to not be ensnared and trapped by the power of sin. So, before we come back to that, let's look and see what happens. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command... This is his last command. And Daniel was clothed with purple. A Mr. T chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. It could be that Daniel's not interested in power at all because he knows what's about. Give me all the power you want, but look in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Both him... And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, was brought before the Medes and the Persians, and both were assassinated at the same time. And in one night, the entire kingdom of Babylon falls. All of it. God had let it stand all of these years. And in one moment, the power of God can take it all. He kills Belshazzar, he kills Nebuchadnezzar, Allows their death, not in murderous ways, but allows their death, and the empire falls. And look here in verse 31. And Darius, the Mede, 
received the kingdom being about 62 years old, which sets us up next week for Daniel and the lion's den. Now, I step back from all of this, this intriguing, crazy story, and I say this. Belshazzar was a poor steward of the truth. He knew the truth, but he was a poor steward of it. And so all week long, I've been asking myself, am I a good steward of the truth? Am I a good steward of it? And so I want to tonight talk you through what I see in Daniel. What it means to be a good steward of the truth. The first thing is this. You have to know the truth to be a good steward of it. Truth is this precious gem. And Daniel, it has been clear, knows it. He knows God. He knows the truth. He knows God is sovereign and righteous and loving. And if you want to be a good steward of this precious truth, this gem that is Christ, you have to know it. And to know it, you have to be willing to learn more of it. You have to be willing to open your Bible and read, not so that God looks down on you and says, well done, you've read another chapter today, but so as you open it, you glean and learn more of his character. If you want to know the truth, you have to be willing to access it and learn it and grow in it. Daniel clearly knows the truth. But if it ends at knowledge, you're not a good steward of the truth. And that's where many of you, that's where many of you end. I know the truth. I can talk to so many of you. Your testimony, I grew up in the church and I knew all the answers, but it was void of this. I didn't, next slide. I didn't live it. I knew the truth, but it didn't transform me. I could tell you all the answers. God is good all the time. The cross is great. He forgives us of all, our, of, all of our sins. But when it comes down to it, I, I wasn't transformed. I wasn't living it. Daniel, over and over and over, from 14 to 80, consistent, no compromise, live the truth, embrace the truth. I'm going to be a good steward of the truth. But a good steward of the truth doesn't just end at knowing and living. It ends in this, in sharing. Listen, he looks in the face of Belshazzar and says, you didn't honor God. And because of that, here is your judgment. I'm not saying that that should be our approach tonight, right? So we go find people who don't believe it. You don't honor God, judgment is yours. In fact, God's probably going to kill you tonight, right? That shouldn't be our message, right? But our message should be the grace of Christ, the love of Jesus, the power that you've experienced through it. You are the bearer of truth, Christian. For those of you that aren't believers here and don't know the truth, I'm, I want to plead that God will reveal the truth to you. But for those of you that are believers in here, you are to be the carrier of this precious gem that's the truth of Christ. I have to read this passage for you because it just completely wrecked me. In John, Jesus says this. Listen to this in John chapter 8. Just listen to these words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And look at this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you have this precious gem, the truth, the knowledge of Christ, that his grace is sufficient, that it's enough. And you, Christian, you know that. You have it there, and yet... We're stopping at knowledge. We're not living and we're not sharing. 
We're being a poor steward of the truth of the grace of Christ. And look at how Jesus keeps going. Verse 33, they answered him, but we're offspring of Abraham and have never been, uh, and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we'll, we'll become free? They're like, look, we're connected to Abraham. We've never been a slave. We've always been free. Remember what happened back in Egypt? Like you, you freed us from that bondage. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and that's all of us. The only way to that true freedom is Christ who said, I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. So Christian in this room, I ask you, are you being a good steward of the truth? Do you see it as this precious gem that you have been graced and blessed with that can't just end at knowledge and can't just end at life, which is representation of faith? It flows through all three, knowledge, living, and sharing. That is being a good steward of the truth. So where do you fall here? Maybe you feel like, you know what, I'm great at sharing, but honestly, I don't feel like I know very much. I, I really don't feel like I live it, honestly, but I'm great at telling everyone about Jesus, but it hasn't really embraced me yet. This is what it means to follow in the steps of a great wise man in Daniel and being a good steward of the truth. And I want to close with this. Could you guys stand together with me? All of my life, my deepest longing has just been to be about and a part of something that's real. That's genuine, that's authentic. Where I never felt like I had to just put on a show and act like I had it all together. But where I could consistently raise my hand and say, I'm a messed up sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. I've just, I've had that longing. But what I've realized as I've thought about the church in general is we have not seen the truth of Christ as this precious gem. We've stomped on it. We've kicked it out. We've created our own distorted truths to make us feel better. We must get back to the simple truth. Christ crucified Christ risen and he's coming back. That simple truth, that precious gem. We must know that church and live through that and share that with the world. Our sharing is representative of what God has done in our heart. I believe that the truth is what it is. And so I say to you, repent of your poor stewardship and become men and women that see the truth of Christ as this precious gem that sets you and the world free from the entrapment of sin. Let's respond.